This morning we'll be in Genesis 32, chapter 32 and chapter 33. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanam. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban, Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I, am, that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I, I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and, and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau my brother meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you, then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is 
on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the sinew of the thigh. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please. I have found favor in your sight. Then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. But please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me. And because I have enough, thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and see her. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way to Paddan Aram and camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he brought 400 pieces of money, the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. You guys can take a seat. Thank you, Paul. I tell you, if you have children or if you've ever babysat children, you know that sometimes things can get loud, right? Sometimes they can get very, very loud. The more kids you have, exponentially it can get more loud. Am I right? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that can be a little overwhelming. But you also know that these are not the most concerning moments, are they? The most concerning moments is when all of a sudden the noise is gone, right? And you're like, what are they doing right now? Because if they're quiet, it's it's probably not good. So you go to look for them. As a hypothetical, you find them in the kitchen huddled, huddled together. You ask, what are you doing? And with full mouths, they say, no food, right? You say, what are you eating? No food. You ate the cookies, didn't you? 
How'd you know? Well, it may be the crumbs all over your face or the chocolate in your teeth, you know. The one points out to the other. It was his idea. He made me do it, right? You've all experienced something along these lines, and we shake our heads and we think, in what world did you think that you wouldn't that you would get away with this? In what world did you think that that if I didn't catch you in the act, that I wouldn't come to get a cookie myself and realize that all the cookies are mysteriously gone and know exactly who ate them, right? In what world did you think you'd get away from? I remember when I was a kid, I used to sneak into the kitchen when my mom wasn't looking and drink maple syrup from the bottle (laughs) because you couldn't track it very well. If you just drink a little bit at a time every day, put it back, run away, you know. Anyway, sorry, now you know something about me. I don't know. Something completely pointless. Um, there's, a, there's an old Latin phrase uh, that, that church fathers, theologians, used to use to describe the nature of the Christian life. Uh, the phrase is quorum deo, quorum deo. And it refers to something that takes place in the presence of or before the face of God. It means before the face of God. To live quorum Deo is to live one's entire life as in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. No thinking we can go off and quietly do what we want. No sneaking some cookies when we know that we aren't supposed to. No pretending as if our lives or as as if parts of our lives are hidden from God. Or that there are areas of our life that God just doesn't really care about what happens or it's insignificant or it's irrelevant. But every moment of every day in every area is lived in the full awareness that we are in God's presence. That's Quorum Deo. But I ask you, how do we live? How do you live? Not only are there times when we deceive ourselves into thinking that we can hide from God purely because we want the cookie, whatever the cookie is, but, you know, in an age of what we call virtue signaling now, we don't even realize sometimes how often we live our lives in the presence of a particular people or person or an unknown them whom we assume will be judging us if we don't do this or if we don't say that or if we don't whatever. Instead of living our lives in the presence of the one who actually will judge us, the Bible says. Why do our kids at times fear an older sibling or fear a friend more than they fear us, their parents? Or fear you if you are the babysitter, let's say, and you, have, you actually have the authority to discipline them, right? Why do we fear man more than we fear God? What can we do about that? You see, as we consider this climactic story in Jacob's life, it takes him facing death again, right? Again, it's not the first time, but it takes him facing death again and the perceived destruction of at least half of his family for him to get it. 
And my plea with you this morning as you listen to this sermon, as we think about this passage, is don't wait until you face such difficult and tragic circumstances to get this. I want you to see that true peace with God and man only comes from living before the face of God. There's only one way to have true peace before God and man, and it is living our lives as if before the very face of God, because in fact, whether you realize it or not, whether you admit it or not, that is what we do. So we're going to talk about this in three parts. And there's three parts of the story. There's the beginning in the beginning of chapter 32 when Jacob getting arriving at this place of two camps and, 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 and realizing he is about to come to meet his brother Esau and he doesn't know what his brother's intentions are. There's this middle scene where he wrestles with a man and then there's the final scene where he actually meets his brother. And so we're going to talk about this in three parts. First, the fear of man. Second, the face of God. And third, the fight of life. So part one, the fear of man. Now, remember where we are in this story. Remember where we are in Jacob's life. Jacob is traveling back to the land of his fathers. It's been 20 years since he left. And when he left, his brother Esau had very clear murderous intent towards him. His brother had outright said, when our father dies, I'm going to kill you for what you've done. His mom, Jacob's mom, says, uh, uh, hey, you know, you need to, to go away, go over here. Um, and then when Esau's anger has subsided, then I will, I'll send for you and I'll get you and I'll call you back home. But, but she dies. And that call never comes. And he lives 20 years wondering if his brother all the time has never had his anger subdued, that his brother still intends to kill him. But God has called him back. And so, so he goes. But all the while in the back of his head, he wonders, how is this going to end up when I meet Esau? And so he comes to this place. And it says there that uh, they're the angels of God. He, meet, he sees the angels of God. And, and this is meant to call us back to another scene where the same phrase is used. There's only two places in the Old Testament where this phrase of, of angels of God, uh, this particular phrase is used. And that, and that is the, the night he left, the night he first fled from Esau. Remember, he had a vision of a ladder, and the angels of God are going up and down. And, and that same phrase is used here, and so it's, to, it's meant to call our memory back that, that the night he left, this is what he saw, and now it's the night before he's going to see his brother again. And so the story has come full circle, and we're on the very cusp of that meeting. And Jacob calls the place two camps, presumably his camp, his family, and God's camp, these angels of God that he sees. So he has all these indications of getting close, and so he decides to take his servants and he says, hey, uh, my brother must be close by, so let's, let's send a message out, Let you go out, and a delegation, if you will, we come in peace, right? But when they return, 
they say to him, hey, your brother Esau is coming and he's got 400 men. Now, I don't, I'm not sure about these servants. You know, it, it, it seems to me that they probably should have got a little more information on Esau's intentions, right? Like, could, you, could you give me a little bit more on what Esau is intending to do when he gets here? Could you, but, but what he does know is here comes my brother with a fighting force of 400 men. That's no small amount. In the 20 years that Jacob has been gone, Jacob has had 11 children and his flocks and herds have grown, but, but Esau's an even bigger family. Esau has grown even more. Esau is a man-child with a whole army of man-children, right? And he's coming for him, and he thinks, he's going to kill me. He is going to kill me, and he's going to kill my entire family. And so he divides his family into two camps, which in and of itself is, should tell him something. In and of itself, the fact that he could divide his camp, his family into two camps, and it's like two whole families, should tell him that God has blessed him and is keeping him and is preserving him, and yet he is afraid, and so he divides it into two camps, thinking, well, if Esau comes and sees this camp and attacks it, I'll lose all of these flocks, and I'll lose my children, I'll lose these wives, but at least this part of my family will be able to escape and live. And what I, I want to pause here and say is, is this is truly scary. This is not like some irrational fear that he has. And sometimes when we're talking about fearing man over God, we are talking about people who seem to have some sort of irrational fear of, of other people or their approval or, or what people think about them. And that, that certainly happens at times. But there are also many times when we talk about fearing people where that is a truly scary situation. Am I right? Where maybe not, maybe there's not uh, the same kind of physical harm that Jacob is facing, maybe. Certainly there are Christians throughout history that's been true of. But it's legitimately scary to think about standing by your biblical convictions and that that might make you lose your job, your means for providing for your family. It's legitimately scary to think that sharing what you know the Bible says might mean being cut off from someone in your family because they don't like it. It's legitimately scary for adults, for kids even, to think if I don't go along with this person and I know that God wouldn't have me, wouldn't want me to go along with them, and if I don't go along with them, that friend may not want to be my friend anymore. That's legitimately scary, am I right? There's real loss there. Jacob is facing real loss. So what does Jacob do? We, we move from being truly, the situation being truly scary to, to Jacob rightly praying. Now, and I want, you to, I want you to look at Jacob's prayer because this immediate response is one that we can emulate, one that we ought to emulate when we are in these kinds of situations. Look at the content of his prayer. First, it starts with the reminder of God's command to him in verse 9. 
God, you've commanded me to do this. I am, I am seeking to obey you in these things. And then it moves to a thanksgiving for God's deeds in verse 10. God, you, you've provided and you've grown my family and I'm two camps. It's amazing how much you've done for me. Thank you so much. And then it moves from thanksgiving to a petition for deliverance. God, would you deliver me from what I'm facing? In verse 11. And then he brings it back around and he, in verse 12, he wrote, it's a reminder of God's promise. And when we're facing situations where we're afraid of what the consequences might be from other people, how they might disapprove of us if we obey God, what we might lose if we continue to uh, follow what God has commanded of us, we would do well to pattern our prayers after Jacob's here, to start by reminding ourselves of what God has commanded to remind ourselves of all that God has done for us in our lives and to thank Him for those things. To pray for God's deliverance in whatever we're facing in that moment. And then to remember what He has promised. He will do. find it interesting when you turn to the New Testament and, and you find look for passages that talk about the peace of God. Almost always next to that word or that phrase, there's something about thanksgiving. There's something about realizing with gratitude what God has done for us. What He will do for us. But as good as His prayer is, <laughs> He moves from praying rightly to leading wrongly. Uh, see, Jacob takes a bunch of gifts, and he sends them out ahead of him in waves, drove after drove, it says, right? And what's the purpose of these gifts? You know, we can speculate, and, and um, uh, commentators speculate on, well, you know, maybe this is uh, an ancient courtesy to send gifts out ahead of you before meeting someone. Maybe it was sim a symbolic attempt to kind of return the blessing of, uh, that he had taken from Esau, like, I'm, I'm going to give this blessing back to you, uh, Esau, so please don't kill me. <laughs> for taking it in the first place? It's not entirely clear. But what we do know from verse 20 is that he hoped by doing this to appease his brother and to be accepted by him. We can speculate whether this, that was right or wrong to do or to do in that way, whether it was a sign of doubt or whether it was a sign of faith mixed with a little bit of fear. But I think at least his motives here are mixed. And the reason I believe that is because after we see him come face to face with God, his approach to his brother changes. It reverses. Here he sends people ahead of him to give gifts or to take the wrath of Esau, if that's what Esau intends. But later, he goes out in front. You see, when we fear man, we tend to have two wrong responses. Maybe this is a little simplistic in the way that I'm packaging this, but for the sake of, for the sake of uh, shortening the sermon, I'm going to be a little simple. But I think in two major ditches that we fall into, the first ditch is that we pretend we aren't afraid by avoiding. We pretend that we're not actually afraid by avoiding the thing. We, we hide behind things that sound really Christian-y, but really we're, we're just kind of avoiding the confrontation that may happen with a person. 
I'm being a peacemaker. I want to be compassionate. I want to give people voice, things like that, which aren't, don't get me wrong, those are not necessarily wrong things when they're done in the right way with the right reasons. The problem is that when they're motivated by fear of man, they will always go off track. You will always end up in a ditch. On the other hand, there are those who pretend they aren't afraid by overcompensating, right? You know, I had a boss one time who was the shortest man that I've ever met, and he had the biggest truck I've ever seen. You know what I mean? He had like three steps to get up into it. It was actually, I shouldn't have, I was not a very good Christian then. Um, anyway, we dress up our cowardice in army fatigues and M16s, right, if, if you will. I don't care what people think anyways, we say. It's just the truth and they can deal with it kind of a thing, you know. It, and, and those things can be true. And they're not necessarily wrong when done in the right way, right? Those aren't, you, you may, it may be true that you ought not to care what that person thinks in that situation. It may be true that you are right and it is just the truth, but, but it's just a different kind of fear of man. We put a, we put a thin, hard shell on the exterior to protect our super soft interior, our lack of confidence. Whereas the first has already let someone in and hopes to avoid the loss of that, whatever that is, the approval, the friendship, the whatever, the second decides, I'll just never let anyone in and then I'll never have to deal with it. But each of them give an illusion of peace, but it's not true peace. Or to give you another example, when we refuse to speak gospel truth to an unbelieving friend because we fear it may ruin the relationship, that very well may be oftentimes the first kind of person. But when we use religious platitudes as an excuse for why we don't have any unbelieving friends, oftentimes that's the second. So what do we do? What's the alternative? Part two, the face of God. How do we keep out of these two ditches? Perhaps fear of man has kept you up in the middle of the night. Perhaps even last night or the night before, you've been up in the middle of the night because you're afraid of something or someone. You're afraid of losing approval. You're afraid of what someone might do. You're afraid of what will happen if you obey God in a particular thing. Perhaps you've lost sleep over that. I know I have at times. And Jacob does as well. And he's losing sleep, and so what does he do? He gets up. It's like he's, it's like, he's like, oh, man, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Ooh, I've got an idea. I'll move half my family across the river. We'll put some sort of physical divider away from half my family. If Esau comes on this side, there's this, this half will be safe. If he comes on this side, this half will be safe, right? Now, I don't know if you've ever crossed a river before on foot. One time we went backpacking, me and some friends, and it uh, rained really hard the night before, and all the rivers and all the creeks went up, and we, had to, we ended up, to get back to our car, we had to cross this creek, and it was flowing. And by the time we got across it, you know, it was up to our waist. And I'm just going to tell you, I thought I was going to die. Like, it is a dangerous thing. And here's Jacob in the middle of the night with children. Hey, let's, go, let's cross the river, right? 
I mean, he is desperate. Desperate. And it's interesting because when he gets back, it says that he's suddenly all alone for some reason, except that he's not. Suddenly there's a man and he wrestles with him. Now that's weird, right? We're like, that's just weird. That's odd on the face of it. But it's also interesting because Jacob, the name Jacob, the word for wrestle, and the word Jabbok for the river, they all sound similar in Hebrew. It's like a, it's like a tongue twister. The wrestler wrestles at the wrestling river or something. It's all pointing to the importance of this event. And it says that as they wrestle, the man can't prevail against Jacob. He can't ultimately win. And what that means that he couldn't prevail, it's, it's not quite clear, but it's an astonishing point when we begin to find out who this is that Jacob is wrestling. Probably more shocking to Jacob in his experience is this man touches his hip and it goes out of socket. Like, what in the world? Like, boop, oh, that you got me, right? You know, I mean, we've all had those moments, you know, you bend over to pick up a piece of paper and your back goes out. I don't know. Maybe Jacob's just got old man problems. But this guy touches his hip and it goes out of socket so bad that Jacob lives the rest of his life with a limp, right? Some supernatural strength. Why can't or won't this man prevail over Jacob? Why is it? It seems as though he ought to be able to, but he's choosing not to. Jacob doesn't stop. And perhaps Jacob isn't winning, but he's enduring in this wrestling match, and he's determined to not give up. Listen, sometimes that's all we can do. Sometimes that's all that God is asking of us right now. Is not to win, per se, but to endure in the wrestling match. So we come to this gravitational center. The wrestling match is kind of the center of this passage, and then at the center of, of, of even that section is this, this idea of these two names, right? This is where all this whole story is kind of like coming down to and boiling down to. And the man says, let go, let go of me. And Jacob says, no, bless me. But see, a blesser can't bless unless he knows the identity of the person he is blessing. And that's the way it would be in the ancient Hebrew world. Like, like I need to know who you are if I'm going to bless you. So the man says, well, what's your name? Now, I think the man knows Jacob's name. When we find out who the man is, we're quite certain the man knows Jacob's name. So why does he ask him, what's your name? You see, I think Jacob having to say his own name, to call it out out loud, does two things. First, it makes him call out loud what his name means. To be honest about who he is and who he has been, you see the name Jacob is heel grabber. It refers to that moment when he was born and he grabbed his brother's heel. It, it relates to how he tripped up his brother and took his birthright and deceived him out of his blessing. And so saying his name in that moment is like him declaring, these are my worst sins. 
These are the defining things that I've done wrong. Specifically, it calls out his sin of stealing his brother's blessing. You see, 20 years earlier, when his dad, Isaac, said, when he walks in, dressed like Esau, and his dad, Isaac, says, who are you? He didn't say Jacob. He said Esau. But here, when the man is wrestling with him, what does he say? I'm Jacob. I'm Jacob. Screw up. Heel grabber. Been wrestling with people my whole life. Tripping them up. Taking what's theirs. Deceiver. I'm Jacob. That's who I am. But then... Something magnificent happens. Verse 28, the man says, that's not who you are anymore. That's not who you are anymore. You are Israel. See, God's told him that before. And I think this is the moment in which Jacob realizes, I'm not wrestling with a man, I'm wrestling with God. Because the only person who has ever said, my name is going to be Israel, is God in dreams and visions to me. He says, no, your name is Israel, and Israel means God fights. And so there's this play on words. Jacob is fighting with God. He's wrestling with God right now. But God will fight for his people, Israel. There's no reason for him to fear Esau, because God goes before him. So Jacob asks for the man's name, but God's like, no, I ain't going to give you my name. Just so you know, I'm me and you're you. I'm God, you're not. You don't get to know my name. So Jacob actually names the place face of God because that's where he came face to face with God. So here, here's the deal. How can we come face to face with God? I'll give you a couple of ways. First, through his word. This is how God chose to reveal himself. Listen, I trust that if God's words can create the universe, then they can do a work in you and me as we read them. There is perhaps no important thing that you can do consistently, daily, nearly daily, whatever, than reading God's word yourself. Here's what I'd say. Listen, if you have never read the Bible from cover to cover, if you've never started at Genesis 1 and ended at Revelation, you need to do that. You need to drop whatever you're doing and just do that until you have read it from cover to cover. I think every Christian, every believer, we have God's Word so accessible to us. Before you do anything else, just read that thing cover to cover. You go, well, Cody, I'll never be able to get real deep into this. Look, look we'll do that every Sunday morning here. We'll get real deep onto a passage. Every Sunday morning here, you'll get that. But you at home, if you've never done it, read it cover to cover until you are done. If it takes one month, one year, two years, I don't care if it takes a decade, read that from cover to cover. And then when you're done, do it maybe two more times. You will not regret it. I only regret taking so long to do that. Second is this. He... he uh, we, we come face-to-face -face with God through our difficulties. God brings us into difficult circumstances, not that we can have bigger problems, right, but so that we can realize that we have a bigger God. 
Difficulties press the truth of God's Word deeper into our heads and into our hearts. We can think, man, God is big in theory, but that's very different than when our problems are right in our face and they end up seeming bigger than God seems to us. God allows Jacob to divide his family into two camps. He allows him to stay up all night, right, worrying about his family and to risk them crossing the river and this whole thing. I think he does it on purpose. Even though if God's camp is on your side, and that's, that's the only camp you need, but yet he lets him go through this whole thing so that it can press the reality of who God is deep into his heart and mind. In the Bible, is there anyone who is given a greater vision of who God is and didn't also experience greater difficulties? And, and did any of them regret that? Not a one. Third, through our flaws. Listen, we come face to face with God in His Word, in our difficulties, but also in our flaws. Listen, here's what I mean by this. Two things happen when we come face to face with God. Two things happen in the Bible when people come face to face with God. First, they have a greater realization of their own sinfulness. And second, they have a greater realization of who God is. And we might say, well, can't we have the second without having the first, Cody? That'd be a lot easier. It'd be a lot more comfortable for me if I could just realize more of who God is without realizing more of my sinfulness. But that's not what we see in Scripture. We need to see how far our sin really goes if we're going to understand just how far God's grace has gone because it goes farther. You see, otherwise we're just saying, God, can't... can't can't God just uh, make me feel better about myself rather than actually making me better? But that's not good enough for God. He's not satisfied with his children just merely feeling better about themselves. He intends to make you better. Listen, if, you are, if you're going to stand on the edge of a mountain and, and you are afraid of heights, I could blindfold you. If you're going to stand on the edge of a cliff, if you're afraid of heights and you're going to stand on the edge of a cliff, I could blindfold you if you'd like. You won't be afraid of the heights anymore, but you might step off the cliff and you'd miss an amazing view. Sometimes we need to know. We need to know just how far our sinfulness goes so we can know just how far God's grace goes. See, Jesus, in giving us a new self, wrestles us down and makes us come to terms with our old self, makes us come face to face with him. But the most glorious thing happens after Jesus, having wrestled the cross up to Calvary and endured it, he'll forever fight for us, his people. He will make sure that his brothers endure. He comes to us not intending to kill us, but to preserve his brothers. But that doesn't mean that the sins of our past will be totally gone from our memory, or even that, 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 that that's God's intent. You see, every time Jacob took a limping step, his hip reminded him of the grace of God over him. And listen, you've got things in your life, and they have caused a limp. Mistakes you've made, 
problems you've had, consequences from, from them, and you limp. Every step you take at times is painful. But that limp constantly humbles and reminds us of our need to refine our faith. And this refining, it happens not because of not because of difficulty per se, but because we endure, we prevail in those difficulties. Sometimes winning is just enduring. And as we face difficulties in the moments that, that lead us to fear, we're forced to lean into who God is, to come face to face with Him, to realize that He's even bigger than we ever imagined that He actually is. And it brings out in our lives this new identity that we already have in Christ. I love the words of the old Puritan pastor Richard Sibbs. He says this, If our faith were but as firm as our state in Christ is secure and glorious, what manner of men would, should, would we be? If our, if our faith were but as firm as our state in Christ is secure and glorious, what manner of men should we be? God is firming up your faith, for your good. See, true peace with God and man only comes from living before the face of God, but it is, it is, a, is a continual fight, and, I tr- and, the, and the, the place where Jacob ends up fighting the most is not with Esau, but, it, but it's with himself. It's Israel fighting with the old Jacob. And so we get to this last point, and we see this great victory of peace, right? It's truly amazing. In the morning, the wrestling match is done, and by earthly terms, he's worse off than he was the day before. Not only is he outgunned, but now he's got a limp, right? He's, he's defenseless against his brother, and yet, what do we see? He divides up his family, but now he goes before them. He leads them from the front. He leads with the limp from the front like he should have from the very beginning, trusting that God will keep him safe. That doesn't mean that he's brash or careless, right? We see him, he's not poking the bear saying like, well, tough luck, God's going to protect me. No. No, he's not hiding or running. He's not overcompensating. Something amazing happens. Esau runs to him and embraces him. What do you mean by all these gifts, all these things that have gone before you? Jacob responds, to find favor in your sight. You see, having favor in someone's sight isn't bad in and of itself. As long as that favor is born from obedience to God, we can think of Samuel, his favor with man. Jesus grows in favor with man. The early church had favor with the people for a period. Jacob insists, Esau, take the blessing. Verse 10, Esau has forgiven him. Esau's forgiven him just as God forgave him. You see, seeing Esau's face in this favorable way is like having seen God's face when God forgave him and blessed him despite him being a Jacob. And here is the main reason why, here is a reason why, I should say, we can't blow past people's sins and just kind of confer God's forgiveness on them without actually dealing with those things. The person who realizes just how much grace they've been given realizes both the wonder of God's grace as well as the kind of grace that they ought to now extend to others. 
we turn God's forgiveness into a mere glossing over of our sins, what happens when someone sins against us and we can't gloss it over? But if, but if we really look our sins in the face and we realize just how bad they are, and then we know that Christ has forgiven us of those things and He is gracious towards us and He has mercy towards us, then when someone does even the most horrible thing to us, we can turn to them and in Christ, through His power, say, yes, I can forgive you. We ought not to steal that wonderful blessing away from people by glossing over sins. We ought not to steal it from our own selves. And I wish the story ended there with this victory, but unfortunately it doesn't. Listen, you're still going to have failures. You're still going to fear at times. Esau says, hey, come, come with me. Uh, I'll protect you. And Jacob knows that he's to, to go to Canaan. He's not to go to Seir. He's to go to Canaan, and that's where he's headed. But unfortunately, he doesn't just tell his brother that, does he? He says, oh, yeah, I'll follow you. You just go on ahead. And then as soon as his brother's off over the horizon, he goes the other way. And what's worse, he doesn't even go where he's supposed to go. He stops by the city of Shechem. Shechem, I can't say it. And we'll find out next week that that's a very, very bad decision. The worst decision. He doesn't continue on to where God has called him to go. He doesn't get back to Bethel. He doesn't get back to his father. He has a lapse and he acts like his old self. And there are consequences for that. And so this is the fight of our lives, guys. And we'll continue to find areas where we act or respond in a way that fears man rather than living in the face of God. But, but listen, God, even still, even still, what we'll see is God has mercy on his people. So where are you struggling with the fear of man instead of living in the face of God? Do you think that it will give you more peace? Or do you think it will just create more problems? I'll give you an example from my own life. When I was uh, about 15 years old, I was really struggling in my faith, really struggling just in life in general. And there were a lot of precipitating events that we could talk about, but I'll, I'll spare you the, all those details. The, the, the point is this. There were a number of people that had an influence on me at the time, and one of them had this great idea that, um, that we could rob the local gas station of a considerable amount of um, tobacco products, which we were not old enough to purchase at the time. And there was so much pressure, right? I could make excuse after excuse. But I went along with it even though I knew it was wrong, even though I knew the potential consequences that it would have, I caved. Now, I don't know, fortunately or unfortunately, in a day and age before security cameras, right? I'm old, right? So the day and age before security cameras, it worked. We got away with it. At least in a sense. But before God, I had crumbs on my face. And crumbs all over my face. And I knew it. 
the realization of all that I had laid on the altar of the approval of a couple of people hit me, and the guilt and the shame followed. And I'm thankful it did. I'm thankful. Listen, I'm thankful for the guilt and the shame because it drove me to repentance. It drove me before the face of my Savior. It drove me to a point of realizing no longer can I live before the face of God and fear man in this way. So repenting of that sin, I realized there were a lot of things I needed to repent of. That precipitating event, that really relatively small event in my life made me realize that there's this whole part of my life that I was trying to live as if I was not in the face of God. I realized that I made some changes, and those changes were difficult. I lost friends. I had to walk away from opportunities. And I didn't see the blessing of it for a long time, but it was a watershed moment. And, and, and it was a moment in which, rather, uh, it's a moment that I don't regret. In fact, I look back and I am eternally grateful for it. So listen, if you're struggling with the fear of man, don't avoid it, don't excuse it, don't overcompensate. Come, come face to face with God in His Word, without compromise, without justification. If you're truly facing a a scary situation, come to the Lord in prayer. Remember His care and His provision for you. Repent of your fear of man. Ask Him for deliverance and see that He doesn't act. And remember, remember that He's already gone before us. That Christ faced man and he faced down the fears, and he looked to the cross, scorning its shame. And those who ought to have been his brothers did kill him in order that he might make us his brothers. He who did and said the right things out of love for those who would believe and know him died at the hands of those who would not And Christ said this, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Listen, the only true solution to the fear of man is the face of God. Quorum Deo. Sola Deo Gloria. Let's pray.